The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Whoops. <laughs> okay, I'm off to a good start. I caught my arm in the microphone cord, which, you know, emphasizes the importance of knowing where your hands are at all times. So, <clears throat> so I'm, I am... Um, I'm obsessed this morning with the image of a sand dune. And um, so you're going to be hearing about sand this morning. Hopefully something useful in addition to sand. You know, it's been, uh, it's been kind of cold and it's turned, it's going to be warm now the next few days. And if you're not subject to any of the power companies' shutdowns, you might think that's nice. Um, and so it made me think of the beach, right? And, the, and, and what's on the beach, the sand. So this morning we're going to spend some time there. Um, there are different kinds of sand out on the beach. And there are different shapes of sand. And I'm particularly interested in the sand dune. Okay? So if you go out to the San Mateo coast out here, you can see dunes. Some of them constrained packed up against houses, narrowed between cliffs and the water. Sometimes you can see large dunes, and those are the ones that are kind of in my mind today, are the large dunes. You know, the ones that kind of, the sand comes up into a mound and then falls over the other side, and it moves around, and the sand dunes themselves move. Now, the, the dune even the way I'm talking about it, seems to be some kind of structure. It has a shape, right? When I say sand dune, you think of something, some shape. And, of course, you know that the sand moves a lot because it's actually not a single shape. It's made up of a lot of little tiny grains, really tiny, tiny grains, and whether where you are on the dune determines how much movement you get as you're walking on the dune, as opposed to just seeing the dune. Because those pieces move around, and they move around quite erratically, right? They just, well, they follow certain physical laws, I'm sure, but, you know, you step into a pile of loose sand, and what happens? Well, it moves. It's not solid. It changes. It might float, fall over the top of your shoe, fill up your shoe. You step on something and you think, okay, I know where I'm putting my foot, and then suddenly you find your foot in another place because the sand shifts. We think we know. I mean, we. We're, we're all fairly mature in this room. We've been on sand. We know what to expect. And yet we still get surprised by the sand. It isn't a fixed fixture. And some of what we experience as sand has to do with what we think about it. 
what we think about it. What do I think about this sand dune? I know this sand dune is this way. I have my expectations. I'm going to go out to the coast. I'm going to walk up that sand. I'm going to feel how warm it is. It gives off heat. And then it's foggy. (laughs) And the sand isn't all that warm. And not only that, that yellow bright picture I had in my mind is kind of beigey gray. And now I deal with the emotional content of how I'm looking at this sand dune. Now I'm either really happy because it just matches my expectations, or I'm a little disappointed because it doesn't come close to my expectations. And I tell myself, well... And then there introduces the story about sand dunes for me. Now, of course, all of this is similar to life and our practice. We think we know where we're headed, and then something happens, and, oh, (laughs) this isn't what I thought was going to happen. This isn't where I expect it to be. A large part of what, how we experience a sand dune has to do with, with what we expect to see. What do we expect to happen? We don't often think about our experience as being so controlled by what we're thinking about it. But this is actually true. A large part of what we experience in life has to do with what the mind is expecting, thinks about, the stories that we have about our lives. Another thing about sand dunes is that um, people have different uh, ideas about how sand dunes should be. So I might think sand dunes should be totally free, right? Do you mean a sand dune is a, a moving structure? Even the dunes, especially the dunes that are out on the coast where they're not constrained by housing or parking lots or stabilizing influences like planted ice plant, those dunes move and they move a lot. They move by, by half a mile up the coast if they're free to do that. They'll shift one direction or another. An entire dune will move. Now, if you're into the wildness of how wonderful it is to watch dunes do that, you find this delightful. So one of my favorite walks up at Point Reyes is to go out Lemon Tour Spit. It's a, a really gorgeous, gorgeous beach, and it is totally unconstrained. So there are some sand dunes that lead, that are between the parking lot and the beach, for those of you who haven't been out there. And those sand dunes are fairly stable. They move around, but they're fairly stable. But as you walk out the spit, it all changes. And so it's about three and a half miles out to the end of the spit. And that is, nothing tells that spit what to do. The waves come in, the storms come in, the the water comes down from the estero through that section right at the end of the of the spit, and it changes all the time. And one of the things I find delightful about it is I never know exactly what it's going to be when I walk out to the end of that spit. It shifts 
There, there'll be a break in the dunes. The break in the dunes will be in a slightly different place. The beach will have a certain structure. It'll have a shelf on it. And then after a storm, that shelf is gone, and it's just sand out to the water. It moves around a lot. I love this. Just a little bit further down the shore are the, the houses at Stinson Beach, and the sand is a threat to them. The moving sand means that th- their houses, which may or may not be on pilings, can be endangered by the movement of that sand. And their view about how wonderful it is for the sand and the sand dunes to be still is entirely different than mine. Unless, you know, I lived on the beach and then I might have a different attitude. This is a, 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 a feature of life and our practice that is really important to see that what, what the mind thinks about what it sees is somewhat determined by the view that we have, where we're coming from, and what we look at. So when we say that, we can look at a sand dune, and we can look at the individual pieces of sand, and we can notice with great precision where those pieces are and how they move, and not be aware at all of the larger dune. Not even important. Not even being considered. When we meditate, this is true. When we meditate, we might choose to meditate on the breath. And we are focused on just watching the breath, knowing the breath, feeling the breath, with great precision and focus. And sometimes that's not at all possible because we are overwhelmed by the emotional content of the day. Overwhelmed by the need to plan something. And that becomes dominant when we sit down, no intention to be precise about the grains of sand is going to make any difference if the wind is blowing the dune over the top of us. So what difference does all this make? It's all a little obvious. What we need to do as practitioners is to see what the mind is doing and how it is coloring our experience. We need to wake up in the morning and know what the attitude is, what the weather is, so that we take that into account in how we define our experience. Because it is the story of our experience that causes us suffering in the world. The story that we have, that we're carrying with us, which is determined by all of these things, the view, the things that we are looking at, the precision with which we look at them, that creates our story. The sand dunes themselves are neither good nor bad. The view we have of the sand dunes is neither good nor bad. It just is. The view we have of our life is neither good nor bad. It just is. The decisions we make when we sit down to meditate 
are just decisions. They're not givens. Like the ever-shifting sand, much of what we take to be, this is how it is, isn't. This is how we think it is. This is how we think it is. This is, this is the attitude I have this morning that is forming this. Very often, the prescription we have of this is good or bad, this is pleasant or unpleasant, has to do with what we are looking at and how we are looking. It's our relationship to what we see that forms the experience. It's our relationship to what we see and feel that forms the experience. It's very difficult to live in a world of pure experience because we bring so much with us to every moment of experience. This also is neither good nor bad. It just is. And our task is to see it, is to notice it. Our task is one of disciplining the mind. To be aware when the mind is controlling the experience and to say, ah, the mind is really strong this morning. Or the mind is very chaotic. Or, hmm, I don't seem to be thinking anything. Not that that happens very often, but okay. So, so the experience that we have in life, the experience that we have in our meditation, is really tied to what we bring to that moment. In a perfect world, which I don't believe in, (laughs) one might imagine that you could let go of everything and just experience, I don't know, what would you experience? Bliss. Bliss. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And maybe what is bliss is an idea that you hold. So... I think this is really important. This is really important. You know, I could say in my life I have experienced bliss. I can, I can think of, right now, several instances. I don't live in bliss. And probably, if I lived in the bliss that is in my imagination, it would no longer feel like bliss. It would feel Normal whatever normal is. So, having said all that, the most consistently that I feel bliss is in a moment when the mind is not in charge and when I'm not involved in meaning understanding when I'm free of having to establish what it all means 
which is part of that story, the story of our lives, the story of this experience, the story of this existence. I recently read a book in which the characters uh, were searching for uh, an understanding about what happened in some event in their, in their long past. So there were people who had had an experience together, and 40 years later they were coming together. One person was missing, and they all had stories or questions about what happened to that one person. And everyone's story was dependent on a set of facts. And everyone's story was a little bit different because they didn't all have the same set of facts. And every fact was imbued with a story, an expectation, an explanation. And the accumulation of those explanations, this is consistent with the fact, the story, this is consistent with the fact, yielded everyone having different stories. They were all at the same place at the same time. It wasn't that they were watching something, by the way. What happened was a mystery. It's just that everybody had a different story about that mystery. And it was all dependent on the data set they had. None of them was bad people. None of them were making up stories. But they, in fact, were making up stories based on the facts that they had. The stories are the fuel for the meaning we attach to our lives. So, so some of those stories have to do with the making of self. This is why I am the way I am. This is the way I am. This is who I would like to be. All of these are stories. These are all stories. I myself, in the course of my practice, have found through meditation and a lot of reflection, ah, this is why I think this about me. This is why I think this about me. It doesn't actually say anything about me. It has to do with, oh, I see the story. And what do we do with those stories? With those stories, we make judgments. We justify justification for what has happened or could happen. We reinforce a sense of self. Here is, here's who I am, and of course I'm this way because this, all these things happened. And the truth is, the person who showed up in this room is an accumulation of all those things, all those experiences that you've had, that I've had. But the story that I carry with, about all those experiences is part of the attitude I bring to this experience. And seeing clearly that it is a story based on the set of facts I am choosing to look at can be quite liberating. Because it turns out 
you don't have to be who you think you are. (laughs) You are not who you think you are. You just are. What you think about yourself can determine how you meet this moment. So what if you said, maybe I don't know myself. What if I'm missing something because I'm not looking at it? And you can all come up with examples of that. You can say, well, you know, I tend to, I, I tend to be quite critical of, you know, name it. Okay. That means you spend a lot of time thinking about that, looking for that, on guard for that. What are you on guard over, about, with? Where do you guard yourself? What makes you feel vulnerable? How do you feel about being vulnerable? So I know a lot of things I've done in life to avoid feeling vulnerable. That's not going to happen because everything from, you know, I tend to, I am very afraid of heights. So I tend not to walk on the edges of cliffs. The other day I went to an art show, uh, which was actually the stimulation for this talk, by the way, but I'll come back to that in a moment. But in the studio, it was an open studio, and the studio had a loft And she had a stairway going up to that loft. And about a third of the way up the stairway, I realized, my God, this is like a ladder. It is really steep because there wasn't that much room, you know. So the angle of the ladder was the stairwell. And it had a nice rail, and immediately I grabbed the rail. And I watched myself going up that thinking, thinking about how I was going to get down. So I was still going up, but I was thinking about how I was going to get down. Oh, yeah, I'm going to back down this stairway. I'll definitely back down this stairway. All of these thought processes, just trying to go up to the loft. <laughs> and watching how it was my attitude about, you know, heights and edges, and it was totally safe. <laughs> it really... It wasn't a ladder, it was a stairwell. It was yeah. But the 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 feeling I got was, oh, I'm afraid of heights. I'm, this this is a scary thing. And it took up so much energy. So much energy and so much mind thought. And and the my friend, the artist, said, Oh, oh, here, don't worry, Muriel, I'll spot you down here. <laughs> because she could see I was really, really getting agitated about the steepness of this stairwell. So I protect myself from this fear by usually not engaging. I could have just said, oh, well, there's not much up in the loft. (laughs) I don't need to go up to the loft. It's really, I love the art down here anyway. So we make these choices about how we interact with the fears, the vulnerabilities in our life. I mean, that's an easy one to talk about. There are other things which would make me feel too vulnerable up here to talk about. (laughs) Right, the psychological wounds that we all carry, 
How do I deal with those? What do I think those have made me? And how true are they? And how long do I hold on to them? And how important do they become to me? How many times do I tell the same story to reinforce this is what's true? Just that stairway I was on was really not all that scary. It's just that I remembered, oh, I'm afraid. And I told my story to myself about how afraid I was. And actually, by the time I came down, I was feeling very silly because it was quite easy to come down the stairwell. So there had been a transformation around how important this story was. Stories. We do the same thing around uh, uh, ethical behavior. This is what is a good person. This is what I do. This is good. This is bad. It's a story, mostly. Now, if, if I'm harming someone, I'm right to judge that as unskillful. But it is the behavior that is unskillful, which is hurtful, that is causing suffering. It doesn't make me bad. It makes me aware of how I am misaligned between my behavior and what I value. And I can choose whether I'm going to continue doing that. I can reflect on it and say, this is really harmful. How do I stop harming? Because my value is to not harm. Not because it's bad. My value is to not harm. We can say the outcome here is good or bad. We can say this causes that outcome. So this is good or bad. So I will always or never do this. Which is ascribing a lot of meaning to some action. You know, an easy thing is to take something like a a knife. A knife is neither good nor bad. A knife wielded by a surgeon can be extremely valuable. A knife can cut my food up so that I can eat it and prepare it. A knife used to extort money from someone is an entirely different thing. But the knife itself is neither good nor bad. So knives do not become a bad thing. I'd like to say the same things about guns, but I, it's, it's a little hard for me. <laughs> because I see the, the harm that can happen. And yet I know that it is not the gun that is the bad thing. And in the hands of some people who are responsible for defending, it can be quite important as a deterrent Unfortunately, when we carry stories about things, about actions, about ourselves, we are creating 
the experience that we have. This is neither good nor bad, but we should be aware of it. We should notice it. As humans, we tend to notice those things that threaten us. It's, you know, it's a biological thing. And so we spend a lot of time looking at those things that threaten us. Whether it's our behavior, someone else's behavior, those people over there. We don't spend as much time looking at what brings us happiness and joy. We have ideas about what happiness or bliss is going to look like. But do we, in fact, look for happiness and bliss as we're walking around in our day, as we're sitting in meditation? When you sit down to meditate, what's the process that you have? You you sit down, you arrange your body, you try to relax your body, You try to focus your mind and then meditation happens and it may take lots of forms. Bliss is not what we're looking for even if it's what we'd like to have. In meditation, bliss has arisen for me spontaneously not when I was looking for it. Not when I was trying to get there. It just suddenly is there. And the process that has happened is a a letting go of the mind, a letting go of the control of the mind. And just, ah, the mind. It isn't my mind anymore. The mind is very active today. The mind is... So yesterday when I was preparing for this talk. Actually, I wasn't preparing for this talk because events took over yesterday that I hadn't planned on and they required a lot of... Oh, my husband wanted to talk about financial stuff, which I have to tell you I really hate. But, you know, I'm the partner. I have to do this. And so there we were talking about it. It requires my mind to go into a certain state And I have to be analytical and rational and considering and making differences, lots of differences and decisions, making decisions. And then there there was another big thing that we were doing yesterday. So it got to be three in the afternoon and I still didn't know what I was going to talk about. And I realized that my mind, that I should sit down and do this, because there was something planned for last night too, of course. So I should sit down and, and do this. But the mind was so tight and so tangled, and so stuck in rational thought. And I said, I'm just going to beat myself up trying to do this. So I went for a walk. I went for a walk to ease the mind, to get to, to allow the mind to not have to make decisions. I'm just going to walk down around the pond, and I'm just going to see. It was a way of lessening the tightness in my mind with no other goal than just to lessen the tightness in the mind. And then I went back and I started. And it was much more easeful than trying to figure it out. 
Meditation is like that for me also. If I sit down with all the intentions in the world, this is how it has to be, this is what it should look like, this is how... It's, uh, the mind just gets tight. And it, it gathers me in, and it, it controls the experience. And so I have to just... Okay. <laughs> okay. I have to shift. I have to look in a different place. I have to appreciate that part of what's happening is I'm looking in a certain way. The view that I'm taking is not taking account of the fact that the sand dune I'm on is moving around. I watched an image the other day on television. It was an ad for something, and there was a, a guy on a surfboard surfing down a dune you know, probably at White Sam's dunes. If you've ever seen those dunes, they're really massive. And he was surfing down the dune, and I thought, wow, that looks like fun. And then I thought, to do that, how precisely does he feel the balance in his body, the shifting weight, the feel of those moving grains of sand underneath the feet in the on the surfboard? He's got something between him and the sand. And how... How is he feeling all of that? It wasn't so much about, let's just scoot down. It's not like riding a slide slide down a a, a snow-packed hill. It takes a lot of focus, precision, discipline, mastery. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. And that's what we do is we practice. We practice seeing the mind, watching the mind, knowing what the mind is trying to tell us, and realizing that it has no more authority than anything else. Excuse me. So, when we continue to look at something in the same way, we become very rigid in what we see. I'm looking for this meditation to be calm and relaxing. I'm looking for this meditation to be easeful. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for relaxation. All of this, I'm looking for, looking for, looking for, is not looking at what's here. It's not looking at, oh, I'm trying so hard. It's not looking at, you know, I'm not really comfortable. It's not looking at, there's a lot of wanting here. Why am I wanting so much? What's this wanting about? You know, we don't question our wanting. We just want. Sometimes I'm aware of wanting, and I say, my God, I'm wanting. I'm not even sure what it is I want. 
But that, that sort of leaning into <clears throat> dissatisfaction with just this. We tend to do, act as if we can determine what happens next. You know, if I'm just good enough or brave enough or flexible enough or it'll all be fine. I know the outcome. And what we discover when we're sitting in meditation is we do not know the outcome. And it is actually an act of courage to sit and say, I don't know the outcome. I can't control the outcome. I don't determine the outcome. I condition the outcome. I condition this moment. I condition the amount of freedom I am allowing myself to have. I mentioned this art show that I went to over the weekend, and uh, Tracy had a series of oils on canvas that were that she called recompose, and the the images, it was all abstract, had to do with what she was viewing in life as the changes of life where things decompose and recompose as something else. And the, the, the energy that it takes for us to spend all our time thinking we're going to compose a certain thing when we're, what she started with is her initial images were compost, <clears throat> which was kind of brave all by itself. <laughs> Watch what's fallen apart and know that those, those things are the starting point for what happens next. Those are the materials of life. This chaos, this mess that is my life, Is what moves forward. And like it or not, it will move forward <laughs> until we die. And then another kind of decomposition happens. But to see things fall apart is to see this is how it is. And to know that what something's going to happen here and that I don't control it can be frightening. Or it can be a sense of curiosity and joy. It can be a sense of joy. Here's all this sand. (laughs) And it will form something. Do I have to decide what it's going to form? I can have my intentions... I can check in with my intentions. I can alter something when I see that my behavior is not skillful. But I'm starting with the components of my life, of the person that is sitting here in this room right now. I can think about, I can have a thought, and that thought can be as important as I make it. How important are your thoughts? What kind of authority do your thoughts have? Are they your thoughts? Or are they just thoughts? 
just thoughts. I can think of something right now. I can think, ah, I'm afraid of heights. If I imbue that thought with authority and importance, I can't walk across the room. If I just think, oh, that thought, I don't have any trouble walking across the room or walking up a ladder. To see the fear, the reaction to vulnerability, to see that allows me to realize that there are lots of possibilities for what happens in the next moment. There are lots of possibilities for what happens with my life in the next moment. I don't have to be a certain way. I don't have to fulfill my ideal. I don't have to fulfill your ideal. I just need to take the next step with the tools I have now. The story that I tell myself about my life is not my life. It is the story. The thoughts that we have describe what we think about what's happening. The thoughts that we have are just thoughts. They aren't real. I mean, there are times, like when I was in discussions with my husband yesterday, I had to lay the thoughts down and follow them in a logical sequence and make decisions. There's a time for that. But we spend too much of our life doing that. We say, ah, these things have happened, that's what this means, and therefore this is what's true. So question when you're sure you know what the meaning of something is. These facts mean this. Really? Do they really? Can you rearrange those facts in another way? Can you see something? Can you look at something and say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking at the fact that my daughter hasn't called me in two weeks. Why is that? Well, she clearly doesn't care. She, two weeks, she could, she, could, she could call me in two weeks. What she's thinking has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it isn't that she's not thinking about me. It isn't that she doesn't care about me. She has a different story running having to do with her kids and her job and her volunteer work and her whatever else is going on. She may be thinking, how come mom doesn't call me? (laughs) It would be such a relief to talk to her. But we have different stories running. We have different stories running. Or here I am at this stage of my life. This should be true. I should have figured this out. I should have a plan. I should be this. Look at my friend. She's doing all these great things. Why am I not doing those things? Well, I I can't do those things, but what am I doing instead? All of this is in the realm of story. It's important to remember 
that all things are arising out of conditions. And those conditions are always changing. We can become aware of thinking, of emotions, of physical feelings without forming them into a story that has meaning that determines what we think we should do next or determines how we see ourselves or feel about ourselves. We can just see them. This moment just is. It has character, it has features but it doesn't mean something. We're here experiencing this moment. We're curious. We're sad. We're open. We're feeling vulnerable. We're feeling confused. It's just that. Can you feel that it's just that? It's just that. I don't mean to say that nothing's required. There's discipline, there's intention, there's practice. There's still meaning in the world. We just don't have to ascribe meaning to everything that happens. We don't have to add every fact into the tile of our existence. It takes courage to see the changing and the unchanging parts of our lives. It takes courage to show up for them. It takes a willingness to experience them. You don't have to carry the anger of some past judgment, injustice into your life right now. You don't have to carry it here. You can know that it is there, but you don't have to carry it here. You don't need to be the person who is not perfect. Don't need to be a person of any particular ideal. You just need to show up here and be willing to be here. Here I am. Here I am, this one. This person who is not becoming anything. This person is just becoming with each moment. Then we can see the very lightness of just being how it takes the weight off life. We can just rest in the lightness, the blameless thisness, the blameless thisness of life. Let's see if I'm... I want to read a, a moment, uh, a poem by David Budbill. 
haven't read any of his poems lately. So this one is called This Shining Moment in the Now. When I work outdoors all day, every day, as I do now in the fall, getting ready for winter, tearing up the garden, digging potatoes, gathering the squash, cutting firewood, making kindling, repairing bridges over the brook, clearing trails in the woods, doing the last of the fall mowing, pruning apple trees, taking down the screens, pulling up the storm windows, banking the house, all these things as preparation for the coming hold. When I am every day, all day, all body, and no mind, when I am physically, wholly, and completely in this world with the birds, the deer, the sky, the wind, the trees, when day after day I think of nothing but what the next choice chore is, when I go from clearing wood roads to sharpening a chainsaw to changing the oil in a mower to stacking wood when I am all body and no mind, when I am only here and now and nowhere else, then and only then do I see the crippling power of mind the curse of thought, and I pause and wonder why I so seldom find this shining moment in the now. When I am only here and now and nowhere else, then and only then do I see the crippling power of mind, the curse of thought, and I pause and wonder why I am so why I so seldom find the shining moment in the now. The lightness of justice. Whatever else is true, this breath right now, devoid of the story. We become able, competent at being on the sand and not worrying about what the sand looks like. We can feel it shifting. We know it's changing. And we're just here like a grain of sand. Those are my thoughts for the day. Thank you for listening. Does anyone have any comment, objection? <laughs> thank you. Is this the way to use this? Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you very much for that beautiful presentation. You're welcome. And I was thinking about the knife and the gun. Mm. And I think about them very differently because a knife is neutral. It depends on how one uses it for harm or good. But a gun is not so neutral. The intention of a gun is that it's going to harm someone or kill someone. So they're very different, a knife and a gun. You know, um, from a personal point of view, I share that feeling. So I'm going to escalate it a little bit. 
and say, suppose instead of we talking about a gun, we're talking about a nuclear warhead, which is capable of much more devastation. And um, as a former radio chemist and interested in things nuclear, I uh, have always been opposed to nuclear weapons. However, I, I once went to a disarmament uh, workshop where people were talking about the importance of deterrence and that unless everyone lays them down, there has to be this ideal of uh, the deterrence of mutual destruction, that one, that the use of the weapon, which, by the way, already exists, will result in obliteration of you also, the user. And that that deterrent then becomes a necessary feature of the existence of these horrible weapons. So, so one can say, I'm opposed to weapons in general. And when the knife becomes a weapon... I'm opposed to that. In the same way that one says, I'm opposed to anger and violence, which is true. And yet these things exist. And so with their existence, how do I manage them? Because it doesn't work to say they don't exist. Mm-hmm. So if we bring it back down to guns, then it becomes who has the gun? And then I can see that there needs to be a place for deterrence. And how those are used really is dependent upon society managing them in an appropriate way. So I can't tell you this is, this is the way it should be. I can tell you that the way it is now is, is not good. So from my point of view. You know, I watched, I got pictures yesterday of my grandsons in, in their new Boy Scout uniforms. And they were so cute and so enthusiastic and they were going to Boy Scouts for the first time. And I have all kinds of attitudes about Boy Scouts and uniforms and the military look of them. Do I impose all those things on these children who are so excited about going to Boy Scouts? And, you know, they want to learn how to, how to use knives, as a matter of fact. That's a really attractive idea to them. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really useful to see how one's view and what one looks at determines the story. So hope that helps. Thank you. Yes. On this same vein... Can you use the microphone? Yes. Um, which I was wondering. Mm-hmm. Can you hold the microphone? Because we're reading. The uh, fact of the, as you speak of the knife, which is a metal, the gun, which is a metal, what is the common factor? The possessor. Yes. The mind of the individual with an inanimate object. Yes. In the Boy Scouts today, 
They don't teach them to make a fire with a match. They catch them with a match. It's a problem. Our society blames inanimate objects for the fact that we do not train our children. I'm hoping they learn how to build campfires myself. <laughs> I went to a, uh, a seminar, and I used to do a living history reenactment. Mm. We started one at San Juan Batista, the town of. And we had a bunch of Boy Scouts come in there. And we, as adults, were cooking over a fire in the old way, the 1820s. And when you didn't have a stove, when you put your food over a, a fire and cooked it. Well, the Boy Scouts were absolutely fascinated with the fact, oh, is that how they cooked meat? And I said, yes, son. Oh, well, that's a really nice prop you have there over that fire. And I says, a prop? He says, oh, yeah, that's movie meat. No, that's not movie meat, son. I took out my knife, cut off a piece of it, and gave it to him. He, could, he and his friends, they could not believe that people did these things. Yes. You know, our children live in a different world than we did. And our grandchildren live in an even more different world. It becomes difficult for us to understand their understanding. It becomes difficult for them to understand our understanding. And um, this is a challenge for those of us who are older, who've had the same experience as being younger, to be careful how our stories influence theirs. And to let them know that what they see is not the only way. It's not the only thing. It's no more right nor wrong than what we see. It's just different. On that note, I think we should close. Bye. Have a good day.